Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is a Merrill Lifer on breaking new ground, the leap to independence with LPL Strategic Wealth Services. It's a conversation with Josh Brown, private wealth advisor and managing partner, North End Private Wealth. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. For Apple Podcast users, I'd be grateful if you'd give the show a review. Your input helps us to make the series better and alerts other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who are considering change or are simply looking to learn more about the industry landscape, please feel free to share this episode or the series widely. Just over two decades ago, Josh Brown had transitioned from working as a mechanical engineer at a textile mill to the Merrill Lynch training program. It was a bit of a leap. But this self-proclaimed nerd with an analytical mindset proved to be a cold-calling cowboy, as he puts it, building a business from zero to $650 million at Merrill. Yet it was Merrill's entrepreneurial spirit, the thundering herd mentality, that Josh felt drove him and his friend and partner Scott Thompson's success. That is, until Bank of America came along and over time changed things. And it became super apparent when a team member with nearly four decades at Merrill came to Josh and said, you got to get us out of here. Their due diligence led them to consider independence, but the idea of extra scaffolding and support was really appealing. And with a landscape that provides more optionality than ever before, LPL Strategic Wealth Services became the standout. So in April of 2021, Josh and his team left Merrill to launch North End Private Wealth on LPL's nascent channel. As one of the first teams to join the platform, Josh provides a unique perspective to why he chose this option over all others and the real value LPL brings to the table and how they help him be a better business owner. Josh discusses the transition process and provides advice to other advisors who are preparing for a move. Plus, this Merrill veteran, a nationally ranked Barron's and Forbes advisor, shares the key factors that motivated him to consider exploring options for his team and shares candidly what changed the firm and how it impacted their business and much more. It's part one of a two-part series hosted by Lewis Diamond that dives into supported independence and specifically LPL Strategic Wealth Services with this episode sharing the perspective from an advisor who recently joined the platform. So let's get to it. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate the opportunity, Lewis. Thank you. Of course. So let's jump in. Tell us about yourself and your background before coming into the wealth management industry. Um, I'm from the South. I was born and raised in upstate South Carolina. Kind of always made pretty good grades growing up and knew when I went to college, I wanted to make some decent money right out of school. So I decided I would be a chemical engineer. 
took freshman chemistry and quickly decided I would not be a chemical engineer and became a uh, mechanical engineer instead. Graduated from college, went to work in a textile mill. And after a very short stint there, realized that maybe a career in textiles is not what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And became an engineering consultant, was never really too passionate about that job either. And I knew there was probably something else, you know, that I should be doing with my life and found Merrill Lynch about that time. Very interesting how you get started. And what drove you into Merrill then? Big jump from engineering into wealth management. I always enjoyed investing. Um, When I was probably 15 years old, my dad made me join an investment club with him. So it was a lot of really old people and a 15-year-old, you know, breaking down (laughs) whether we should buy two shares of Exxon this month or not. And in 1999, I had a uh, good friend of mine that started with Merrill Lynch. And uh, that's the first time I really realized that there was a career in planning and giving financial advice and that that's something you could do with your life. And talked to him for a long time, met with a lot of people at different firms and early 2000 decided to uh, make a career change. And in May of 2000, started with Merrill Lynch. So just, just started fresh in the training program and grew the business from zero to where it is today? Yep. I was a cold calling cowboy and kind of made my own way. Did have a couple of partnerships through the years, but literally started with a phone book and a desk in an old house in Anderson, South Carolina and zero people that I knew that had any money and started from there. Wow. And how do you think your engineering background helps inform what you do for clients on the wealth management side today? How did it help you build your practice? I would say if you think about an engineer, I'm probably your prototypical engineer, analytical, detailed, focused, organized. My wife would say that I build a spreadsheet to go to the grocery store. So that's probably (laughs) exaggerating, but that's not far off. So I think that translates pretty well into our job. I think on our team, you know, we don't let things slip through the cracks. We're very detailed. We're very process oriented. Things that we do you know, each day, each week, each month that are repeatable, we put them in a process so that we know what we're doing. And I think that consistency, you know, clients appreciate that. And, uh, you know, our team's grown over the years. And I think some of my nerdiness has probably rubbed off on the rest of the team some, but hopefully that's a good thing. Now, I would say everyone has their own unique path that gets them to where they are. Yours is just a little bit different, but I would say you kind of have the right skill set to, to jump into this. So let's talk about your business when you're at Merrill. Describe your team, uh, what types of clients did you work with, how much did you manage, and any other metrics do you think would be relevant? Yeah, so our team at Merrill, there were six of us. Um, We had four advisors and two support staff. The advisors, all of us really came from pretty diverse backgrounds. My senior partner, Scott, he's uh, been in the business for 19 or 20 years. His background was marketing. Joel Gray joined us about seven years ago. He was a high school English teacher before coming to work with us. And then Jake joined us in 2018. He was an attorney. So we all kind of have different backgrounds that we've put together into this group. We were managing around 650 million in assets at Merrill, probably somewhere around 400 clients, if I had to guess. Doing about 4 million in production was kind of our number at the time. And uh, our clients were... I would say a lot like our families that we all grew up in, a lot of blue collar manufacturing jobs around here. So a lot of rollover business, definitely some business owners. And, you know, we have some publicly traded companies, so we do have some executive business there. But the bread and butter for us has been that 
750,000 to $2 million rollover type client that you knows they need advice. And thankfully they need it from us. Hopefully that's the plan. <laughs> I love it. So a couple of things to dive into a little bit more there. So first, I mean, the, the backgrounds of the team is very interesting. You have former engineer, high school English teacher and an attorney. It sounds like the beginning of a joke. <laughs> but I know too that you, Joel and Scott are pretty much best friends outside of work and were friends for a very long time. Any words of advice for working with close friends and how to navigate that? Yeah, it's pretty unique. So Scott and I started at Merrill Lynch within about a week of each other back in 2000. And we kind of struggled together through the beginning of our careers. And so it's natural that we became you know really good friends. But it wasn't until 2016 that we decided to team up. So at that time, Scott had a good business of his own. He had actually left Merrill and was at another firm. And I convinced him to come back and team up with us. But you're right. Joel and I have been best friends for 25 years. We had lots of conversations at late at night about him leaving education to come work for me. Joel is a people person. He's one of the hardest working, honest men of integrity that you would ever meet. And um, I told him, I said, you know, I can teach you to be a financial advisor, but I can't teach somebody with all these degrees and all these certifications to work hard and be honest and be a man of character like I want on my team. So he decided to make that change. The other part of the story is, and you may not even know this, but Jake and Scott were actually roommates in college. So Jake went in uh, to work as an attorney, made the change to go into financial services maybe five or six years ago, and then we got him to join us as well. So Scott and Jake have a very long background. Scott and I have a very long background, and then Joel and I have a very long background. So it's, uh, it's definitely a unique situation. Uh, the one thing I would say about it is we have a lot of conversations about the difference between personal and business. I can tell you the conversations after hours or when we're at lunch don't have a lot to do with business. And we're very intentional about that. But uh, when we walk in the door and we're servicing our clients, we're also very intentional about what comes first and how we work in the business. And there's been tough conversations we've had to have as coworkers and we don't all agree on everything. And, um, but that's part of business, but it never interferes with the, the long relationships that we have. It doesn't sound so much different than working with a family member. I know I experience that every day. Many advisors too, where you got to find the line between the personal side and the business side. But when you trust each other and you already have that camaraderie and that foundation built, it could be a pretty powerful combination. And it seems like your team, that's kind of shapes your unique characteristics. It's not just your backgrounds that are pretty diverse, but also your lifelong relationships and trust. Well, I think in our business, you see teams that fall apart all the time and it's greed becomes an issue, trust becomes an issue, things like that. So when you have four people that have similar moral compasses, similar ethics, similar beliefs, to me, it's pretty easy. We don't have those dynamics that enter in our team. And, and I've seen other teams and friendships and relationships fall apart in this business. And I've always said, if, if our group ever blows up, it will not be because of money or greed or, or things like that. It'll be something out of our control. And hopefully that'll never happen. <laughs> Absolutely. And when you're at Merrill, you personally were a nationally ranked Barron's and Forbes advisor, which is an amazing accomplishment. What do you attribute some of that success to? A little bit of luck. I mean, sometimes it's just, you know, if you work really hard for enough years that eventually, you know, the numbers get big enough and somebody pats you on the back. So a little <laughs> bit of luck involved there, but definitely at Merrill, you know, I had some great mentors. 
when I started, you know, I started in a cubicle and there were many senior advisors that sat around that cubicle that, you know, thankfully for me, they kept their doors open when they worked every day. And I got to learn a lot by hearing them sell this, talk to a client off a ledge about that, you know, things like that. And so I think just seeing the way they did things and then hopefully I worked pretty hard for a lot of years and a little bit of luck and somehow it worked out. So, uh, but definitely some great people along the way that propped me up, you know, through the business. Yeah. Everyone has to have that support system and you're humble about it too, which is very nice to hear. So let's talk about the Merrill years. You were obviously working at Merrill during the 2008, 2009 financial crisis. Were there front lines when Merrill was rescued by Bank of America? Can you talk though about how life was similar or different post the Bank of America acquisition? So we'll say from 2009 until you decided to leave in 2020. Yeah, I would say the experience at Merrill prior to the acquisition was very positive. You know, I have great lifelong friends that I'll always have from Merrill. I chose Merrill Lynch because I felt like the name spoke for itself, right? When you're 25 years old and uh, you're an engineer turned financial advisor, you need all the help you can get, right? So I didn't want to have to explain what firm I was with when I went to meet with a prospect. So when I said I was with Merrill Lynch, you know, it carried a little weight and it kind of spoke for itself. So that was the Merrill that I was used to, the entrepreneurial spirit of the advisors there, you know, kind of operating as a family, the whole thundering herd, you know, mentality and all that. And I'll say after the Bank of America acquisition, you know, they pretty much left us alone. I mean, we kind of did our thing and I would say there was not a tremendous amount of influence uh, the first several years. Maybe that changed 2017, 18 in that range. I think there's probably a shift. You know, I can't say that there was one event that happened that made me say, wow, you know, things are different now. But I mean, there was definitely a pivot that happened around that time period. More ties to, you know, the banking things, everything that everybody has said on this podcast, right? You know, the checking push, the credit card push, the mortgage push, the web bill pay, you know, all those things. Now, I'll say this, my approach is a little bit different than most. You know, I can't blame Bank of America at all for doing that. Merrill Lynch makes up less than 20% of the overall revenue of the bank. So if I'm the CEO or the board of directors and I've got 20,000 captive salespeople that have access to thousands and thousands of families around the country, yeah, I, I would probably lean on them to grow the bank's core business. You know, I totally get that. So they made a business decision that they thought was best for Bank of America with this pivot that they made. But I guess the, you know, the good thing for me is some point in the last 47 years, I became a grown up and I get to also make business decisions and do what I think is best for my clients and my team and my family. That's when, you know, we kind of started looking around a little bit and you and I met and all that good stuff. Yeah. We talk all the time about the concept of incongruence. And I think you're right that you can't fault from a business standpoint, the direction that Bank of America is taking Merrill Lynch. I mean, clearly the proof's in the pudding and the profits in the growth, but it doesn't mean that you as an advisor who has his own clients, who's really built his own business, has to go along for the ride. And it's when you believe that you can no longer serve clients the best of your ability or the organization that you're employed by is getting in the way of you doing your very best work for clients that advisors start to take action. So if we can go just one level deeper on what we're talking about with Merrill, what were some tangible things that either you couldn't do for clients 
or where you said, you said it wasn't one event, but what was something that kind of sticks out as a defining moment or representative example of this realization you had that you're no longer in the best possible spot? Well, I think it was just things along the way that felt like missteps a little bit. So whether it was people listening to this that are Merrill people will understand what I'm saying, but when we had the Merrill Lynch unlimited advantage accounts, the Malua accounts, there was a certain pricing structure we were encouraged to use. And then years later, we changed that and you know, there's no real reason to change it, but it changed. That was an impact to all of us. Decisions that were made about low price securities, then decisions were reversed decisions about you know the first three percent of our compensation each month we don't get paid on the growth grid you know there are all these little chinks in the armor that made you not really question the reason they would do it but just wonder if there's a better opportunity you know the whole growth grid thing where we have four advisors so for us to maximize our compensation which is why we all do a job right for compensation but for us to maximize i mean we would have to bring in 30 households every year. Well, if we do that for three or four years, guess what? We have to hire another advisor to service those or water down our service model. And if you hire another advisor, you know, you really no net gain for you when you do that. I was much more comfortable bringing in one $10 million relationship than 25, $250,000 relationships because I didn't feel like that would impact our service model to our existing book as much. So that was, it was just kind of all those things that really made you start to question, like, is there a better way to do this? Yeah. That's kind of all over the place, but I hope that makes sense to you. No, it makes complete sense. Every advisor has their own unique journey um, for really coming to the personal decision that either they're in the right spot or they're not. Um, the, The growth grid Um, which is just a change in the way Merrill compensated advisors was certainly, I think, a major pivot point for many teams. Just like with every firm, compensation plan changes. Um, They typically aren't received with overwhelming enthusiasm, even though you're still making tons of money and you weren't going to go hungry and you weren't, it's not like you were blocked from living a great life. Um, It's it's what what the change means. And it's the fact that you can be doing everything right, you're ethical, you're growing, but because you don't hit a certain metric that the bank wants, um, that doesn't really make sense for your style of business um, that you're penalized. So I I completely get it. I think that makes very good sense to me. Um, So let's move to 2020. Um, That's when you and I started to work together and had the privilege of guiding your team along the due diligence process. So I remember one of the first questions I had asked you was, Josh, you're growing, you're making a lot of money, and none of your complaints are about the platform. Um, it seems like you can do pretty good work for clients. So if, if you remember, what was your answer to that? Like, why would you go through the brain damage of even thinking about moving when all of those things were true? There's a little bit of a story here. So if you just kind of stick with me here. So 20 years at Merrill, I had literally never looked outside of the walls of Merrill Lynch at any other firm or any other opportunity. Never had a cup of coffee with the manager down the street. Never talked to a recruiter. Uh, your mom would call me every year. I would talk to her, but never had any interest in going any further. Um, I was loyal to Merrill. I assumed I would always retire from there. You know, that's kind of the way it was. Um, my assistant, Jeannie, had been at Merrill Lynch for 39 years. I'm thankful that she had been my assistant for the majority of my career. And she was the longest tenured Merrill Lynch employee that we had in our Greenville, South Carolina office. So sometime early 2000, we're having a team meeting and 
there's some issue from the bank side that we're all kind of belly aching about a little bit. And uh, Jeannie looks at me and says, you've got to get us out of here. And I remember thinking to myself, man, if Jeannie is saying that, Jeannie's been at Merrill Lynch as the only job from the time she graduated from college, 39 years at Merrill, and she's saying, you've got to get us out of here. So after the meeting, I talked to her and I said, you know, what do you mean by that? And she said, I told everybody I would never leave Merrill Lynch, but I feel like Merrill Lynch left us years ago. You know, I'm willing to leave Bank of America if there's a better opportunity. That really kind of hit me pretty hard. There was a running joke that I had in our office that when I would bring in a new client, I would introduce them around and I would introduce them to Jeannie. And I would say, this is Jeannie. She's been at Merrill Lynch since the beginning, you know, 39 years. If you ever hear that Jeannie leaves Merrill Lynch, you should take your money and go somewhere else because something's gone bad wrong. That's what I used to tell prospects <laughs> and clients. And now to see this actually playing out in front of me, it was very eye-opening. So I talked to the other partners and I said, look, if you guys will give me six months to do some due diligence, I'll come back to you and I'll tell you one of two things. Either Merrill Lynch is the best option there is. We should stay put. We should stop complaining. We should grow in spite of any headwinds that we have. And we will all have great careers. Or there's a better mousetrap and we should consider doing something different. And so it was about that time that I started doing the research, started listening to this podcast and others. And I really decided that I needed some help, reached out to you guys and you and I connected and it kind of goes from there. I love that for a couple of different reasons. First, that you were so attuned with what your team members were, were saying. It wasn't just, this is Josh's idea, but it was the wake up call from your very well-regarded assistant or partner who um, kind of had an inside track and was there longer than you were that made you kind of, I guess, wake up to what was going on. And the second part, which I think is really smart, is creating a plan in your mind for strategically evaluating the decision. And that's the best possible place to conduct due diligence is you didn't have to move, but you said, let's look around, let's know once and for all if this is really the best possible place. If it is, fantastic. Now at least we can stay from a position of strength and we don't have to keep complaining and talking about what life could be like elsewhere, or we'll find something that is better and then we'll go through the hard work and we'll be able to serve clients better in the end. So I think that's the best way to do it. Very strategic. And I'll always be grateful that we had an opportunity to partner together on such an important project. Yeah. And I'd say too, you know, we set a timeline, like we weren't, we weren't going to beat this up for two years and always interview another firm and another firm and another firm. We actually set the deadline that by the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, we would make the decision whether we were going to stay or go. And then at that point, we wouldn't talk about it anymore one way or the other. So we had a pretty process-oriented way to go through it, as you can imagine, and tried to lean on you guys to help us learn the landscape. Because it was pretty obvious to me when I started looking that things had changed, right? The difference between just going to another wirehouse versus going fully independent versus supported independence versus this and that. Like, I needed some help, and I didn't have the time to try to you know sift through all of that. Yeah, absolutely. And what aspects of leaving Merrill worried you the most? The big thing was we didn't want to impact our client's ability to meet their goals. That was kind of the bottom line. I knew that it, if we left, there would be differences for clients, but it couldn't be something that would, would derail their plan. You know, the website looks different. Okay, you'll get over that. Statements have changed. You'll get used to it. Or it couldn't be 
because we decided to make this change, you've got to work two more years before you can retire because we don't have the bells and whistles you need kind of thing. That was not an option. So that was the the main thing for us was we want to have as little of an impact as we can on our clients and their planning. We can adjust. We can you know, make the best with something that's maybe not perfect, not exact, but we didn't want our clients to have to compromise. Yeah. That makes sense. So let's talk about the due diligence process. What was the criteria that you and your partners were going to judge a new firm or platform on? Or put another way, you said you, you gave yourself this deadline for when you'd figure out if there was something better. How would you define better? And what, if there's a couple of things that you were looking at or considering, if you can share that with the audience. Yeah, I, I think the big thing for us was for me, especially as I kind of led the process, I just didn't know, you know, what I didn't know. I didn't know if you went independent, what that meant from a compliance standpoint, what that meant from, you know, choosing your platforms, you know, things like that. Honestly, this is a little bit of a cop out, but I really leaned on you to help me determine what was important. So you listened to our story, you listened to how we ran our business and you helped us prioritize, you know, technology stack versus the support coming from the firm versus do we need to have a certain number of investment options in, in this particular space or whatever. And I really leaned on you and you helped us figure out that for us, the support part was important. None of us had the desire or we didn't think the time to go all the way fully independent and the support thing ended up being the biggest deciding factor for us. Yeah. And going into the process, were you gung-ho about about being a business owner? And did you and your partners think of yourselves as being entrepreneurs and future business owners? The first 20 years at Merrill, like I said, I kind of had the blinders on. And I will say though, at Merrill, our team kind of acted like an independent business within the, the structure at Merrill. You know, we had our own marketing plans. We had our own compensation plan to bonus people within the team. We had you know, a lot of things that we ran as our own entity within the, that structure. So I think even at Merrill, even though we didn't own the relationship, you know, we tried to run our, our group like it was a business with reinvestment into the, into the business and things like that. So maybe we were entrepreneurial and didn't know it. And maybe we had thought about ourselves as being kind of an independent group within Merrill, but just really had never crystallized that idea in our head. I will tell you this, I like the idea of independence and being an entrepreneur. That was something I had interest in um, my whole life. You know, when I've been given the opportunity to bet on myself, I always have. And a lot of times that worked out for me. There's a few times, maybe, maybe in high school, I picked a fight or two that I shouldn't have, or I bet on myself and it didn't, didn't work out. But in general, you know, I'm always willing to bet on myself and accept the consequences one way or the other. That's kind of how I saw leaving Merrill. It's just you know, we can do this. This is something we can do. We're capable of doing it. And that's kind of where we went. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you for sharing. So let's talk about where you ultimately decided to, to move your practice and your clients. You opted to partner with LPL's Strategic Wealth Services. Can you just talk a little bit about what resonated with you most about the offering? Yeah. I mean, Strategic Wealth Services within LPL kind of falls into that supported independence area. You know, the idea of we build it and they run it kind of thing. I was surprised with the LPL offering. I kind of knew the name LPL and I was surprised with the offering, just the amount of the uh, heavy lifting they could take off of us. 
when it comes to building, running the firm. So Strategic Well Services has only been around maybe 18 months or something like that. We were the sixth firm, I think, to join Strategic Well Services in the first Merrill Lynch firm. So there was a little bit of the bleeding edge of technology there, you know, as they were developing certain things. But that was the thing that stuck with us the most, just the support that they could provide on that platform. Yeah. And one of the first things that comes to mind when a wirehouse advisor, especially, is considering a platform like LPL is name brand. Advisors know who LPL is, but sometimes they're worried that their clients aren't going to know who LPL is unless they research it. And of course, it's a well-regarded, publicly traded company. Mm -hmm. So coming from Bank of America or Merrill Lynch, which had a very strong brand and a lot of recognition with their client base, were you worried about that fact? A little bit. I mean, anytime you're you know, managing $650 million and then when you get off the elevator from resigning, you're managing zero, uh, you're worried about everything. Um, so I think you know, for us, uh, LPL has a major presence in Fort Mill, South Carolina, which is just a couple hours up the road. Um, we definitely use that to our advantage through the due diligence process and talking to clients you know, to be able to go up and do a, a home office visit there um, and explain to clients, you know, that they're right up the road. If we, you know, if we need anything as cheesy as that sounds, clients like to hear that. And then I think when we could tell clients, you know, that we can replicate what we're doing for you, you know, LPL has a very robust offering. Um, you know, the, the number of money managers we have access to is far and above what we had at Merrill. Um, and for most of our clients, you know, you're not going to miss a beat. Everything that you're doing at Merrill you're going to be doing it at our new firm, our new firm, by the way, North End Private Wealth. I don't know if we've said that anywhere along the way, but at North End, you know, you're going to be doing the same thing that you were doing at Merrill. The advisor didn't change at all. It's just your statement, your website, you know, things like that will look different. Um, I think clients got very comfortable with LPL very quickly, and it really was a non-event in the transition. Amazing. And were you able to replicate everything you're doing for clients or were there any sort of gaps and maybe how you had to pivot your practice or that you had to change um, because you decided to move firms? Uh, there, there were a couple of things that, that weren't, you know, apples to apples, if, if you want to say it that way. Um, on the alternative investment side, you know, the, the LPL offering of say private equity is not going to be as robust as Merrill. I will tell you one great thing about LPL is they are very open and ask me very often for feedback. You know, what does strategic well services need to be doing to replicate the wirehouse experience? Where are the gaps? What are we missing? And I've told them like your alternative investment offering needs to be beefed up. That's something that they're working on. But for those very few gaps that they had, you know, the other side of it is, the, the number of managers that we have access to now is just off the charts. And, you know, we're eight months in and we're, we haven't even gone through that whole due diligence process to figure out this particular manager, you know, provides access to something that we just never had before. So there are some give ups for sure, but nothing for us, it was nothing that was a deal breaker. Um, and I'd say we had a, you know, a, a fairly decent practice, you know, between hedge funds, private equity, the way that we managed and traded our um, proprietary models and things like that. It wasn't, you know, just buying C-share mutual funds by any means. And I don't feel like we had, you know, real, any real gaps when we moved over to LPL. 
Right. Yeah. There's never going to be a perfect move. There's always some sort of shift or change. And the calculus is, is the overall going to be better for clients? Uh, it sounds like you, you check that box. Well, um, that's the thing that you you guys say, right? Is it better enough? It does, it, it's got to be better for everybody, but is it better enough to make the move? And is it not going to hurt you know, clients' ability to achieve their goals? And I think we could check all those boxes for sure. Amazing. Let's talk a little bit about the specific scope of services that LPL, Strategic Wealth Services, provided your team. Let's first talk about pre-transition, and then we'd love to hear about post-transition, what those services look like. So once we made the decision that we were going to LPL on the Strategic Wealth platform, they jumped in and literally we had weekly calls from that point until transition. So that would have been probably mid-December of 2020 through April 8th is when we left Merrill. So five months, four months of just consistent contact, consistent calls. And this was everything from the legal side of leaving Merrill, you know, handling protocol, establishing a new business formation, developing our new firm's name, the brand, the marketing website, real estate search, building out the office, helping us with our technology selection, benefits, you know, building our benefits package, the healthcare, all those things. I mean, they literally held our hand through that whole process. We were not alone, you know, really through any of that. And, you know, some of the things were pretty easy. The real estate search uh, ended up being pretty easy, but some things are a little bit tougher. We've got a wide range age-wise of our 16 members. So we have to make sure the, the healthcare plan is acceptable for everyone. So we needed help on that. So I can't think of anything through the pre-transition phase that we did on our own that they didn't have a hand in and helping us with. Yeah, that's the beauty of the model. And that's been a catalyst for many teams like yours who weren't the just extreme entrepreneurs who wanted to figure everything out on their own to give them the confidence and the ability to launch a very successful and high-end business in a relatively short period of time. And we kind of felt like we knew that once we transitioned to LPL, obviously we're going to pay them a fee for their the strategic wealth service for that platform. And we just felt like if the experience we had pre-transition, if we only had half a, as good of an experience on the post-transition, it would still be a worthwhile deal for us. Um, they had set the bar really high through pre-transition of the hand-holding and the attention to detail they would have. Yeah. And now that you're eight months into being business owners, what's been the value add or the services that you're drawing most on from LPL and from the platform that you're on? Uh, so I, I'll, I'll let you elaborate on it a little bit if you want after I say this. So the strategic wealth platform that we're on, we pay a fee. And in return for that, we get, in my opinion, a lot of stuff. So what does that mean? We have a virtual admin. So a person that sits in Fort Mill, South Carolina, that replicates our two admins that we have on our team. We share that virtual admin with one other firm. And basically we went from having two assistants to having two and a half. He opens accounts, transfers money, answers phones. He can do all of that stuff for us. That's included in our strategic wealth fee. Um, we have an operations manager that's kind of like the fixer for us. If something goes sideways in an account, you know, paperwork wise, opening a wire is not going out, whatever. He steps in and does that for us. We share him with a couple of other firms. Um, we have a chief marketing office that runs our website, our social media, marketing campaigns. If we have a client event, she handles 
you know, all the work with that, getting invitations out, the RSVPs and everything for clients. Um, we have a CFO that works with us that helps us close out the month, uh, do a revenue analysis, data analysis of where we're, how we're getting paid, where we're getting paid, what our net after expenses is, you know, all those things. We have a business manager that we meet with monthly that helps us refine our offering, helps us determine what the next step for North End Private Wealth is from a growth standpoint. Um, we have a chief technology officer that is responsible for our office that helps with any you know computer issues or if we want to add a new software to our platform, he helps us do that. So all of those people uh, are covered by that strategic wealth uh, services fee. And those are things that if we didn't have that support, you know, I would probably be doing about half of those myself and then the other team members picking up, you know, the other roles. I don't want to run the North End Private Wealth Twitter feed. <laughs> you know, I know it's important, but that's just not something that I would enjoy. So I'm glad that we have Madison that does that for us. I'm glad that we have Paul that can step in if Jeannie or Ashley's on vacation, that he can step in as a virtual admin and be my go-to person for that whole week. So that's the kind of thing that we wanted to have ongoing. And I can tell you, like I said, if they did half of what they promised, it would be a great deal. I mean, it's been off the charts with the support that they've given us. That's amazing. It's really been amazing to me that of what we get for what we, I mean, hope nobody changes the deal based on this, but for what we're paying, it's a really good deal. I feel like, so um, <laughs> I know you're interviewing Kimberly Sanders soon. So um, hopefully that doesn't change anything. <laughs> That's ultimately what you want. You, it's a good deal when both sides feel like they're getting more than they bargained for. The next episode of the series is going to be with Kimberly Sanders, who is leading the strategic wealth services platform for LPL and helped create it. So we'll go a level deeper into the why behind strategic wealth services and how they're supporting advisors. So one thing I wanted to hit on before we um, move forward is compliance. That wasn't one of the items that you mentioned. That's kind of just uh, it's table stakes of affiliating with the platform. But some would worry that the compliance and the, the FINRA lens that a broker dealer like LPL has would slow down the business and limit you from doing certain things. What's been your experience with compliance so far? Like, how would you compare it to Merrill and how would you compare it overall uh, now that you're independent? Yeah. So again, on the support side, we have a compliance officer. I didn't mention that. We have a compliance officer that's assigned to our firm. He's there to answer general questions, very specific questions about relationships. Um, if I have questions about, do we need to be doing this or that at the local level to be compliant? I mean, he's a phone call or an email away. So very, very easy. I don't feel like I'm left alone on that, that front at all. We had a really good relationship with the compliance folks at Merrill. I mean, we had the same people in place for many, many years. Thankfully, we ran a very clean business so we really didn't have a lot of issues to deal with them on. But I will say that since we've been to LPL, the interactions we have had on the compliance side is this is not to be negative about Merrill at all, but they're just a little more advisor centric maybe than I was used to, meaning a little more willing to understand the day-to-day -day realities of how you run a practice and more willing to find answers and exceptions and ways to get things done versus the phrase that gets used on this podcast a lot is managing to the lowest common denominator. You just don't have that. Our firm is our firm and we're held to you know the standard of our firm. So that's that's been a, a breath of fresh air for us. 
Yeah, which is a really interesting spin because, I mean, LPL is the largest independent broker-dealer. Um, so some people would worry about that lowest common denominator aspect. But the mentality, it seems like, is it's they manage each practice individually. And because you have a very high standard for your ethics, the type of business you do, and because you have that relationship with compliance, even though it's a large firm, um, you're treated like you're one of one. That's right. Definitely the interactions with compliance are, are one-to-one and... Um, again, it's just been refreshing. I, that's an area that I worried about, honestly, just what's it going to look like? Are we you know, jumping from the frying pan into the fryer? And it's not been like that at all. It's been a breath of fresh air. Perfect. So let's talk about the transition. Now you're eight months into being a business owner, having launched North End in April of 2021. What did the pitch sound like to clients when you moved and just how did the transition go overall? Our approach was pretty simple and straightforward to clients. We just kind of told them we wanted to control our own destiny and kind of go back to the focus of day-to-day financial planning and wealth management and really do our best we can to strip out the noise that could possibly come from the bank or other areas of the business. By taking the ownership, you kind of go back to our roots of financial planning and customize the client experience based on what we feel like is the direction our firm needs to take versus being, you know, a bank centered, you know, kind of firm. And I'd say it really didn't take much more than that. It's kind of that rubber meets the road moment where you have to figure out are these clients Merrill Lynch clients or are they Josh Brown clients? And I'm thankful to say that, you know, for our team, it's been amazing. I think through eight months, we're over somewhere close to 95% of our assets have transitioned. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. We had a little bit of market growth and we brought in some new clients. So we're actually within, I think, one or 2% of the asset number we had at Merrill. You know, annualized production, we're back to where we were at Merrill. So, I mean, it's been, it was hard. So don't let anybody tell you it wasn't hard. It was hard. But, you know, eight months in, you kind of have seen the light at the end of the tunnel and we're kind of getting closer to business as usual. So it's been really good. Yeah, It's been refreshing and the amount of support we got from clients has been off the charts. So uh, no regrets at this point. Amazing. I think it, 99% of advisors would sign up for a transition tomorrow if they had with certainty that their transition would go like yours did, even with all the hard work. So with the benefit of hindsight now, what was something that you would have done differently in the transition, whether on the planning side or once you hit the eject button, something that you wish you had uh, had maybe done in a different way, playing a little bit Monday morning quarterback? In the weeks leading up to April the 8th, when we actually left, I would have slept more, maybe taken a vacation day or something, because like I said, the transition was hard. I mean, the first three months was kind of like a blur. And I know you hear that all the time from people. I guess I wish I maybe would have talked to a few more teams that had recently transitioned to get some tips about staying organized through the process and maybe some of the pitfalls that they ran into. I know there's plenty of people out there that have made the move to independence that would be willing to share their story and have you know us had to learn from them. That's just not an area we tapped into. I don't know if it was just being naive or maybe it was, I thought we had it all figured out, but I'm sure there was some things we could have learned from that. And then I'll say this, you know, the, I don't know that this should be a deciding factor in anyone in picking a firm that they go to or don't go to. But one of the biggest surprises that we've had on the efficiency side is LPL uses DocuSign for all of their account openings and transfers. And that's just not something we did before. 
getting, you know, electronic signatures on account opening and ACATs, but it was a literal game changer for us. You know, during our transition, we could talk to a client on Monday, by Monday night, they would have signed all their DocuSigns to open accounts and transfer. And then by Friday, you know, we would have assets showing up at, at North End. And that was probably one of the biggest surprises to me is that before I could even get through the first round of calling all of my clients, we had $200 million showing up <laughs> through the front door. Which is amazing. It's, yeah, Which is, it's, it's great, but it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> so no complaints about it, but DocuSign was doing a transition all paper. Um, I'm sure has challenges and, and things that are great about that too. But the DocuSign deal was truly, like I said, a game changer for us on the transition. Yeah. I mean, it's a high class problem when everything starts showing up. For sure. schedule. Yeah, yeah. How about the technology overall? How does it compare to Merrill? It's very similar. I mean, we still use Morningstar and CFRA research. We still, you know, we use Thompson One for all of our market data. We had the option of continuing to use Salesforce is what, you know, what we used at Merrill. We opted to transition over to Redtails. CRM is a little bit more advisor friendly. We were probably using about 2% of the capabilities of Salesforce you know, at Merrill. So we needed something that was maybe just a little bit simpler for what we were doing. From an interface standpoint, I would say the interface that our assistants, uh, Jeannie and Ashley, that they use every day, I think it's a little bit better than what we had at Merrill. I mean, their ability to open accounts and move money and process wires and things like that, it's a little simpler, a little more intuitive. Advisor side, you know, it's a little bit different. It's something we're getting used to, but in the morning, I opened up my portal to use ClientWorks to access all of my client information. And then I opened up another window for Redtail and I opened up another window for Thompson One. So I have three different things going where at Merrill, you know, you would log in and kind of everything would be there. So it's definitely been pieced together, but I think it gives us the opportunity to piece together the things that we want and not pay for and not have the things that we don't want. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks for sharing. How has your lifestyle changed since going independent? I know it hasn't been that long. Transition was uh, a major part of it. But now that you're kind of through it, how has lifestyle changed for you and your team members? I would say we worked a ton more over the first few months, obviously. Now it's kind of gotten back to more business as usual. Our hours are kind of back to normal, back to a routine. I guess the one thing I'd say without really any hesitation is, and I'd say this for all six of us on the team, the work is more satisfying. I guess it's just the feeling that literally everything I do every day is for my clients, me, my team, my family. And that's refreshing. There's not wasted time or frivolous work to check a box that's just you know time wasted into a black hole. I don't mind working hard. I've never minded working hard, but you want to make sure that that work is going you know, to the right place. That's been refreshing to me. I'll add one more thing about how kind of independence changes your way of thinking. Uh, my partner, Joel, and I were talking recently, and um, he mentioned that he liked the idea that he knows where every dime of our money is being spent. So meaning we know what we pay for strategic wealth services. We know what we pay for our rent, internet benefits, all those things, and we can control those. And he said something to the effect of it sure beats the days where we would give up more than 50% of our compensation to somebody that knew what was best for us. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, so we're back to kind of business as usual and it's a whole new world, but it's, it's exciting. Yeah. That's a two, I think very 
interesting pieces of perspective and how to think about being independent. So I get two more questions before we wrap up here, if you don't mind. The first is, is there anything that you miss from your wirehouse days that either is not as good as it, on the independent side or something you just miss from, from being part of the Thundering Herd? Just the interactions of the office, maybe. We had a fairly large office of maybe 30 financial advisors. So there's a lot of seasoned veterans in our office. So there's a lot of idea sharing and investment sharing. So I, I miss that. I think as an independent, you have to be a little bit careful that there's not group thinking and everyone thinking alike. I think it's pretty easy to turn you know, your office. Like for us, there's four advisors. It'd be pretty easy for us to turn into a just a big echo chamber of like-minded and you know, potentially wrong ideas. Right. So thankfully in our office, you know, we have some strong personalities and some free thinkers and we challenge each other on ideas when we're not aligned. But, um, I miss that a little bit. I miss, um, maybe some of the competition. So in our office years ago, our manager would post like daily, monthly and year to date production numbers in the break room. And, you know, as a young guy in the industry, I thought that was pretty good motivation. You know, I'd look and see who was next in line, who I could pick off from a production standpoint. So I think, again, if you go independent, you have to realize you're competing against yourselves and set your goals. And I think we have the discipline in our group to kind of create our own championships that we want to win so we can do that. But I'll miss that a little bit. I'll miss the guys at Merrill, but I'll be lifelong friends with those guys and we still eat lunch and hang out and play golf and all that, but I'll miss that some. So I lied. I actually have two, have two questions. Okay. <laughs> One I just thought of because it's something that you mentioned earlier, but I'd be remiss not to mention that mergers and acquisitions and recruiting like-minded advisors to North End was part of your strategy, something you're interested in. So for anyone listening or just in general, What's the pitch sound like? Why would someone want to join North End? And what would someone be able to accomplish if they were part of your group? Well, I think if you have the idea that you want to go independent and you have the opportunity to bolt on to, in particular, a strategic well services team like North End or somebody like us, I think it, it would be a no brainer to, to talk to those people. You know, if you align with them morally and ethically and investment, whatever, if you align on all those things, um, why not go to a place where the path has already been cleared? So at North End Private Wealth, you know, specifically, we've already picked out the name and we already have a lease and carpet color and technology, like all that's done. So if you can find a group like that where you, know, you can go independent, but you know, the path kind of already been cleared, that makes a lot of sense. Um, for Strategic Wealth Services, I think there's now um, 18 firms around the country. Um, and that have opened in the last you know 16 or 18 months, whatever that is. I'm sure there's more in the pipeline that nobody can talk about. But I think if there was a strategic well services team that already existed in Greenville, that would have been a great place for us to talk. So I think being able to go independent and kind of have the best of both worlds where, you know, you still control your destiny, but you don't have to start from scratch would be appealing to somebody. Final, final question. The team member you mentioned who was the 39-year veteran of Merrill, the one who was really the wake-up call for you to poke your head out to begin with, would you say that she's happier now? And does she think it was the right move? I actually asked her that yesterday, prior to us having this talk today. I said, you know, any regrets? Would you go back? She said, not in a million years. She would not go back. 
it was hard for all of us. I mean, you know, 20 years at a firm for me, she had been there 39 years. I mean, it's very emotional. And you don't realize that, you know, when you're going through the due diligence and you're looking at dollars and cents and basis points and all that. But when it comes time to actually resigning and starting over, I mean, it's very emotional. But I can tell you, just like everybody does on this podcast and in articles that you read, you know, I wish I, I wish we had done it sooner. I know I legitimately do. And I think if you ask Jeannie, she would say the same thing. I heard her tell a client on the phone, it just wasn't worth holding out for another year to get the gold watch. It was time for us to do something different. <laughs> so, <laughs> Great wrap up. Josh, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your story. And I feel smarter and more informed after listening to this. And hopefully all of our listeners feel the same. So thanks again for coming today. Yes, sir. I appreciate it. We often say that the industry landscape is exploding with new and exciting options, so much so that just about every advisor can find their version of utopia if they seek it. For Josh, it was about finding a model and firm that he felt he aligned with on all levels. And LPL Strategic Wealth Services was all that and more. In our next episode, Kimberly Sanders, Senior Vice President of Advisor Solutions at LPL Strategic Wealth Services, joins the show to dig into what makes their model unique in the growing supported independent space and talks about changes in the industry landscape overall. So be sure to listen in. I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the articles link to browse recent topics. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached by cell at 973-476-8578 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And keep in mind that our services are available without cost to the advisor. You can see our website for more information. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. If you're listening on the Apple Podcast app, I'd be grateful if you gave the show a star rating and a review. That will let other advisors know it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.